From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. We're honored that you're joining us today. If your kids are off from school already for the holidays, be sure to have them join you around the radio player. I think you'll find several benefits when they join you. First of all, of course, is increasing their financial literacy. You see, the educational systems internationally are starting to incorporate what's historically been the strength of the U.S. educational system. While it appears the U.S. educational system is degrading to what I would term a more socialistic approach. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that the uh, past focus of, of, of the U.S. or uh, let me let me start with the international side. They, in the past, they focused on teaching students more facts, formulas, and subjects. The key strength in the U.S. has been to teach students to learn. And I think that's worked very well. Unfortunately, I now hear of initiatives in the U.S. like no student left behind. You see, that brings the curriculum down to the level of those with the lowest IQ or propensity to learn. No longer is there as much incentive for the bright kids in the U.S. to be the best. That is, by the way, the socialist philosophy. Everyone should attain the same minimal standard. No one stands out. Second, your kids will better appreciate the various financial aspects of what you do, in addition to working for money and providing for food and shelter. Things like paying bills, doing your taxes, financial planning for your and their future. The third benefit, you get some family time together. In addition to reading and playing games, you see, listening to the show together is far better than watching some mindless TV shows. It's an opportunity for them to learn from the show and from conversation from you on these topics. And each of us gets older, we start to realize that the gifts we get are far less important and far less remembered than the time we spent with our parents, family, and friends, and the time they spent with us. And fourthly, and just maybe some of your kids will follow in my footsteps, and when they're teenagers, they'll do your tax returns for you. Wouldn't that be nice? And in the process, they'll provide suggestions for ways for you to manage your taxes. Now, incidentally, if your kids are not around during the live show, there's no reason you can't pull up the archive and listen again when you are together. Now, I don't want to miss the great opportunity to wish you and all of our listeners, especially those in the U.S., a happy anniversary. You are expecting something else. No, I am not referring to the third anniversary of the Wealth DNA Radio Show, which occurred in September. I'm talking about two centennial anniversaries. Yes, there were two very important and relevant occurrences 100 years ago in 1913 that will commemorate today. I'll share those events with you in just a few minutes. A touch of suspense. Now, I can't believe 2013 is almost over, and I want to take a moment and do what I should do more often. To thank BI Solutions Corp., who has sponsored the show for more than three years, and Boom and the Babe Network for the amount of time and energy they expend and have absorbed a lot of the cost to date. And a special thanks to our producer, Pete, a.k.a. The Boomer, without whose initiative and effort this show would never have existed. Thank you. All of our listeners living in the U.S. or citizens living abroad are subject to the U.S. worldwide tax system. 
you'll learn some very important timely information this show. And those listeners living in other countries and not subject to U.S. income taxes will have a chance to contrast their tax system with the complex U.S. tax code. Now, many of the suggestions we share today actually apply to anyone who pays income tax. And interestingly, as I analyzed a number of national personal income tax systems, I realized that the vast majority of countries tax you on your worldwide income, not just on the income in their country. Now, the U.S. is one of a few who tax their citizens based on their worldwide income, whereas most countries tax their residents on worldwide income. That's a very big difference. Now, were you aware of that? So if you're getting frustrated with the U.S. politics, moving out of the U.S. may not help, and it will certainly complicate your financial life. Now, you might be wondering how I know this. Well, it's because I'm a tax refugee living in the U.S., which brings us to the first of eight topics we'll cover today. Are taxes too high? You probably have heard of political, excuse me, political refugees, but I happen to fit into a rare category, tax refugees. No, that's not because I violated some major tax laws in another country and had to leave. To the contrary, the personal income tax laws in Poland, where I happen to be living at the time, and most of the other new European countries were changing the EU standard, where you're taxed on worldwide income based on residence. Now, I'll share more details in a future show, but the bottom line reason for moving out of Poland and back to the U.S. was that if I stayed, I would pay anywhere between five and ten times the amount of income tax I was paying before. Now, for those of you who prefer percentages, that translates to a 400% or 900% increase somewhere in between the two of those an increase in my personal taxes. So I decided to become a tax refugee would be much better. Now, I actually had my staff at the time analyze the taxes and business friendliness of 12 different countries. So I ultimately had the choice of being a tax refugee in a country with a cold climate and a flat tax, or back in the U.S., in a place with a much warmer climate, with tolerable and manageable tax. So now I'm a tax refugee living in Arizona. That brings me to a key point. Despite the complexity, there are two major advantages to the U.S. tax system that 95% of Americans never realize. What are they? One, there's a high level of income not subject to any tax, and that comes from a combination of the way the progressive tax rates are structured. The income, income exemption and the higher of a generous standard deduction or itemized deductions. See, in Poland, the level of income not subject to any taxation was about $500. In the U.S., it's about $50,000. So yes, the statement that Mr. Romney made during the presidential campaigns back in 2012 was indeed accurate. Almost half of the U.S. citizens pay no personal income tax. Now, the second advantage of the U.S. tax system is by increasing your knowledge, and remember that's the N in DNA, or by hiring a knowledgeable tax advisor, you have an opportunity to take advantage of the benefits of the U.S. tax code. Excuse me. And one of the tips given to you by Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which you talked about in a show back in October of 
2011. You might want to go back and listen to that show. They said to take full advantage of those benefits, you need to set up and own a company and have most of your income and expenses part of your company tax return. This is so important and has so many important tax implications. We'll talk more about it later in the show. Now, so for our listeners subject to U.S. taxes, when you complain about how high income taxes are, my response, compared to what? And if you've ever ad- uh, excuse me, if you've ever attended one of my seminars, you'll know the same response that I give if somebody asks me how my wife is, compared to what? Now, our topic today, even if I didn't state it earlier, should be pretty obvious by now, tips to manage your taxes. Although I'll focus on U.S. taxes for 2013, the topics we cover and the fundamentals will be the same year after year in virtually any country you're taxed. Today is December 23, 2011. To, excuse me, 2013. Let's try that again. December 23, 2013, our last show for the year. It's 9.09 in Arizona, 11.09 on the East Coast, and 8.09 a.m. on the West Coast. It's the only day I ever like it, so we'll do everything possible to make it a good one. You're listening to the Wealthina Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m in Arizona. I certainly hope you can join, join us each time we air, but if you miss a show, you can find it in the archives. Just go to www.wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Now, we welcome your comments and questions during the show. I highly recommend using the chat window to the number of topics I have to cover. And uh, if you do call in, that number is 917 388 4162. Our producer can put you through, but I can assure you the chat window will be more efficient given the number of topics and the amount of writing you're likely to do. And uh, let's just take a look at the equity markets. After setting the 40th and 41st record highs for the year on the S&P 500 just last week, they're off to a positive start. Asia was up. Europe is up just as it's getting ready to close, and Brazil is up. I assume our listeners are optimistic. Now, the market stats reminded me to explain why I wish you a happy anniversary today. Well, the first centennial anniversary is the birth of the U.S. Federal Reserve, also known as the Fed. It was formed by several wealthy barons and officially chartered by Congress in 1913 when they passed the Federal Reserve Act, exactly to the day 100 years ago, December 23rd. And those families still own the Fed. In case you didn't know, it's not actually a national organization or a federal organization. It's owned by private families. Now, the second centennial anniversary we're celebrating this year is of the 16th Amendment, and all of you, I'm sure, remember what that amendment is. It's to formalize federal income tax. And the top rate at that time in 1913 was 7%. And that 7% applied to those earning 500000 or more, which today is probably somewhere around $3 million. So how appropriate are you talking about managing your taxes 100 years after the U.S. tax system was officially signed into law? Now, obviously, taxes have expanded, gone up, become far more complex than they were 100 years ago. So this show today is far more important than it would have been to you 100 years ago. 
Now, as I mentioned, we have seven more topics to cover, so let's dig in and cover the second topic. Know where you are and where you're heading. Now, if you're wondering what that has to do with taxes, it's actually one of the most important considerations. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people spend more time complaining about taxes than trying to answer where they are and where they're heading. See, back in uh, September 2011, we did a show, it was entitled, How Are You Doing? You Can't Manage What You Don't Measure. Now, in that show, we focused on how your portfolio is doing, but the exact same concept applies to taxes. Every time you submit your annual tax return, you uh, should do at least two important calculations. Let me summarize those for you. The first is your effective tax rate, and that is line 60, your total tax, divided by line 22, your total income. This gives you an idea how much you pay in taxes, and it, compare it to a flat tax rate. Let's say we had a flat tax of 12% or 15% and see how your effective rate is compared to that. Now, most people think they would pay far less in taxes under a flat tax until they realize their effective tax rate may actually be lower due to the tax management they're doing, and we're talking about today. Now, each time I reference a line number, as I just did, I'm referring to the, to the 1040 line numbers. I can't imagine any of our listeners use a 1040 short or easy form for their tax return since you wouldn't be able to take advantage of any deductions, report gains, and losses on your investment transactions. So yes, there is a price to pay for managing your taxes. You have to use a more complicated form. And of course, it's your choice to do a little extra work or send extra money to the government. Now the second calculation is your marginal tax rate, which takes a little bit more work. If you've used tax software to do your preparation for 2012, merely go in and increase your income by $100, so that line 22 is ultimately $100 higher, and let the tax software compute your new tax amount. Your marginal tax rate is the increase in tax from that calculation divided by the 100, the amount you increased your income. So if you're doing your taxes manually, and looking them up in a tax amount, the tax amount in a table, just do the same thing. Assume your taxable income was $100 higher and see what the tax rate would be. The other uh, possibility is you're using the actual tax percentages and the, uh, the little schedule that's provided by the IRS, and then you will just use that percentage. That is your marginal tax rate. It might be 15, might be 25, etc. Now, if you're managing your taxes well or you have a low-level income, your effective tax rate might be only 5 or 10%, and your marginal tax rate might be 10 or 15%. Obviously, if you've got a very high taxable income, the numbers will be far higher, and you have more to gain from this show. Now, some people would use their AGI or adjusted gross income, that's line 37, for their effective tax rate, but I would argue that is not correct, since you're already factoring in a number of tax shelters, or tax loopholes if you prefer, when you look at AGI. We'll talk more about some of those. While we're discussing those two calculations, an appropriate time for me to remind you about a statement I occasionally make on the show. Paying taxes is not among the guarantees in life. If you earn very little or you manage your taxes very well, you could indeed pay zero or very little in income taxes. Then what are those guarantees in life? Well, certainly 
first is death. The second is that your computer will fail. Now certainly John, one of our regular listeners, can attest to that since he mentioned his failed recently. And for those of you who think you won't be affected since you don't use a computer, well, when your car stops suddenly and unexpectedly and the mechanic later tells you that some module failed, whether you call it a module, tablet, smartphone, or computer, failure is guaranteed. Now, of course, there is a similarity between those two guarantees, both death and your computer failing. Neither happens when you expect it, nor does either one of them happen when it's particularly convenient. I think it was some guy by the name of Murphy told us about that. So now you know where you are, your effective and marginal tax rate. Next part of the question is, where are you going? Now, by this, I mean what is your, what will be your effective and marginal tax rates in future years, 2013 and in the future. There aren't too many surprises for 2013 unless your income's changed. We'll cover some of the changes in our sixth topic today. But the big question is what do you expect your effective and marginal rates to be in the future? Initially, don't focus on what the government, specifically the incompetent politicians, are likely to dream up. Focus on your specific situation, how much more effectively you plan on managing your taxes in the future. Now, one consideration is whether you'll be able to use itemized deductions and whether you have used them and will be able to use them in the future. So here's one tip. By grouping some tax deductible items in every other year, you'll get a higher deduction that year and you'll still be able to use the generous standard deduction on the years in between. Did a light bulb just turn on for some of you? What if you were unemployed for a number of months in 2013, or you quit your job and started a new business, or you invested in a new rental property? Your tax rate will likely be lower, and it would be a good time to shift some of 2014 taxable income into the current year. Or another example, that many self-employed self uh, self taxpayers face when they're applying for a mortgage loan. They want their taxable income, specifically AGI, to be higher in the years being used as a basis of the loan application. On the other hand, if you plan to retire in the next five or ten years and you expect your taxable income to be significantly lower then, you'll want to minimize taxes this year and kick the tax can down the road until you're retired. Heck, if the government can kick the budget or debt can down the road, why can't you? Now, there is one more important aspect to knowing where you are and where you're heading. During December, go ahead and put together a preliminary tax return for 2013. Clearly, if you're trying to do this manually, it can be very tedious, so I highly recommend you spend the $40 or $60 on tax software to make it easier. Besides, all of your initial data from 2012 is is automatically carried forward if you used it in 2012. And you'll also get a direct comparison of the two years. There's no better way to estimate your tax bill for 2013 and make the decisions on these last-minute income tax shifts than to sit down and estimate your tax bill. Obvious, right? Now, I certainly understand that despite sounding simple, it's not so easy for a demanding job or business that you're running. And I certainly am one of those that knows something. It is something I should be doing and can't possibly find the time due to the other demands I have. So I understand. Now, the bottom line for this topic number two, know where you are and where you're heading, 
think before you decide what the best thing to do. Should you be minimizing your 2013 tax bill? Or maybe the opposite is true. Now, this is a great segue to our third topic, tax strategy versus tax tactics. Try saying that five times fast. We'll talk about specific examples very shortly, but I want to address two key aspects. First, we already started to talk about, which is your tax rates today versus in the future. If you work very hard to minimize your taxes this year, will you be able to do the same next year? And just importantly, what is the government's attitude toward tax rates? Now, very clearly, during this fiscal cliff negotiation at the end of 2012, it was obvious the current U.S. administration was pushing for higher tax rates, especially on our listeners, which they refer to as the rich. They evidently feel that the people who create jobs work hard to build businesses or work hard to advance their career and better their standard of living need to pay more to subsidize those with less ambition or less opportunity. Well, clearly there's a need to help those who can't help themselves, either due to disability, age, or illness. But personally, I have a problem paying more to help those who don't want to help themselves. I truly believe that in most developed countries, especially in the U.S., there's plenty of opportunity for anyone who has the desire, acquires the knowledge, and takes action. Gee, I think I just stated the Wealth DNA Framework. Well, let's put politics and personal views aside and focus on the so what, and specifically, so what should we do about it? The key is to have a tax strategy. Now, I'm not talking about some formal 15-page document written by a tax lawyer that you put on the shelf. I'm talking about a game plan for managing current taxes and future taxes. And uh, that, you know, basically the second aspect uh, that I wanted to mention is why is it that most experienced investors spend very little time on year-to-year tax t- tactics excuse me, and merely execute their tax strategy through the year? There are three key reasons. You might want to write these down. First of all, they have a tax strategy and know how they're doing. In other words, they know their effective and marginal tax rates now in the future. Second, they've gotten to know the tax laws usually by learning a little bit more each year as their tax situation gets more complex. And the third of these three is you have, they have been executing those tactics throughout the year, so no need to stress at year end. The fourth of these three is by focusing on their strategy, the tactics become far less important each year. And the fifth of these three, those experienced investors realize that paying higher taxes also means they're earning more money. And as long as marginal tax rates are significantly below 50%, they get to keep more than half of the extra money they earn. Yes, I know I mentioned there are only three key reasons, but we try to give you a little more than we promise. Now, the bottom line is the, uh, for this third tax, uh, this third topic, excuse me, tax strategies versus tactics, am I better off paying more in taxes this year or next year? And now that brings us to the fourth and most important topic today, the components of a tax strategy. Now, hopefully you have had and pen ready for this uh, list of components, as well as some of the specific topics we'll share during this this topic and during the seventh part shortly. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. Look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. If you missed some of the prior shows or you want to re-listen to them, including some of the ones I just mentioned, just look up the archive on wealthdna.us. 
Now, during the show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions or send us some comments. The best is use the chat window below the radio player. That way we'll be able to fit it in to the overall flow of the show. And our topic today is tips to manage your taxes. We were getting ready to cover the components of a tax strategy, and I've listed 12 of them in total, so you might want to make your list. The first, and I hate to mention this one, is marriage. I truly believe that marriage is a, 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 a marriage, and basically family is a very important component of stable society. On the other hand, I would be doing a disservice to our listeners today and in the future if I ignore this topic. Unfortunately, the current U.S. administration has reintroduced a marriage penalty into the tax code. Now, some of you may be old enough to remember back in the 70s and early 80s when we had a Schedule G as part of the tax filing. That Schedule G was used by couples filing jointly to reduce their total taxable income due to the marriage penalty that was built into the tax code and therefore the tax tables. The lawmakers fortunately recognized that if couples with a significant difference in income between the partners would not be married and would file separately, their tax obligation would be lower than if they filed jointly. So to avoid a lot of divorces, Schedule G was a form designed to reduce that disparity. And I believe it would have caused more families to fall apart if they didn't have it. Now, as I recall, as President uh, Reagan's administration, the marriage penalty was eliminated. He was, after all, a strong believer in the importance of family. Now, there are two notable changes to the tax code that have crept in recently, reintroducing the marriage penalty. The first is the Non-Affordable Care Act. As in the past, if a couple has a disparity in income, one of them might qualify for a subsidy on their health care insurance if filing separately. Whereas if they, if they file jointly, they may not qualify. My own nephew is in that situation. It's one of the reasons he's decided to not remarry. The second of the uh, changes were introduced, or the second group of changes were introduced for 2013 as a result of the fiscal cliff negotiations I just mentioned. The changes are intended to tax the rich more heavily. Most of them have income thresholds of $200,000 for individuals and $250,000 for couples. So a couple with two high incomes might be better off uh, not being married and filing separately. The marriage penalty is back. Okay, the second component is owning a company. And again, I'll refer you back to the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, in which the authors strongly advise you to set up a company and uh, run most of your investment activities through there. Now, under U.S. tax law, individuals are taxed on their gross income with some expenses deductible against that income, whereas companies tax on their net income, in other words, after deducting all of their expenses. Now, I'm not suggesting, nor is it legal to set up a company just for the purpose of deducting your expenses. But let me mention just a few examples of deductions better handled through a company. Expenses like tax software, financial newsletters, and a number of others have to exceed a threshold on your personal tax return before you can deduct them. Where if those expenses are an integral part of your investing business, you can fully deduct them. Now, are you able to deduct health care insurance expense on your individual tax return? No. But as a self-employed investor, consultant, or whatever your company does, your health insurance is deductible. 
Now, let's take an example of Fred, a retired person, or Fred and Ethel, a couple who have no, re- or no earned income. If they file an individual tax return, they'll essentially pay taxes on their pension plus investment income plus withdrawals from their retirement plans. And most likely, the only deductions they'll have, if any, will be the mortgage and property taxes on their residence. They can't contribute it to an IRA since they don't have any earned income. But on the surface, it would seem they won't pay much in taxes because their pension income would be tax-free. Or at least, that's what most people think. For most investors, 85% of their Social Security pension will be taxed. So, after listening to this show, Fred and Ethel decide to form Mertz Enterprise, a company which will manage all of their investment activity. As the owners of that company, they'll contribute all of their taxable investments to the company. They'll be able to deduct business expenses for their car they use to attend investment clubs, investment seminars, their computers, computer equipment, software, including that tax software that are used solely for the business, can be deducted. Now, if you have a dedicated office, do they have a dedicated office for their investment activity? They can also deduct the expenses and depreciate that portion of their home. Now, since Mertz Enterprise needs someone to actually manage that investment activity, they can pay themselves, which will be taxable to them, but it's tax deductible to the company. But most importantly, it allows them to contribute to their, their earned income to an IRA, which we'll talk about later. The third component is tax structure of the company. This is a decision you'd make me once or very, very seldom, but a very important one. Let me use an example of an investor I was meeting with just this past Friday. They have a choice of which entity to use when billing a client for services they provide. They have both a Schedule C company and an LLC with an S-Corp tax treatment. Now, whatever activities they do in that Schedule C company will be treated as earned income on their personal tax return and thus will be subject to self-employment tax. But they're also employees of the LLC, and therefore the employment income they get from there is subject to that self-employment tax. But the LLC's activity in itself is passed to their personal tax return using a K-1, so it's passive income. So it became pretty clear that any additional income they would get should be, would be much more tax-efficient earned by the LLC. So choosing the right structure for your company and maybe having multiple companies can be very important in managing your taxes. Fourth component, shifting income and expenses. And uh, we're talking about shifting them back or to this year or to the future. Most people have gotten pretty good at uh, last-minute deductions like charitable donations before year-end, although they don't think as much about ways uh, to... um, shift income or expenses back or forward. You can wait uh, until you're obligated to make your property tax payment, for example, or you can pay the next installment in December. By doing that, you'll have less to deduct next year, so keep that in mind. You probably won't be surprised if I tell you a larger range of income and expense shifting is possible if you do it within your company. Working with your clients and suppliers, especially If you use an accrual accounting versus the cash method individuals use, you can sign contracts during December that provide you either additional income for product services your clients would be planning to buy next year, or you could commit to buying additional products and services from your vendors in December that will arrive and will be paid for next year. 
Now, if you use the cash method, obviously the actual transaction has to take place this year. But the accrual method, a bona fide contract committed this year, is sufficient. Now, very often, while you're looking to move income or expenses one direction, you might find that one of your clients or vendors are trying to do just the opposite and will be very pleased and maybe even grateful for your help to help them out. If you're an investor with BI Solutions Corp., feel free to contact them about deferring an interest payment on your private mortgage loan or MP3. If it's still possible this month, they will help you out. Notice, if you're not familiar with some of the topics I just covered, like accrual accounting, Schedule C companies, S-Corp taxation, just put it on your to-do list. We'll talk about it shortly. Now, the fifth is sheltering your income to defer taxes. Now we're getting into some meaty topics. Many taxpayers think there's something illegal or at least improper about sheltering income, but let me mention a few examples that make you feel uh, that maybe feel a little more comfortable, first of all, and realize that they're pretty standard strategies. And by the way, they are allowed under the tax code. The best known is the traditional IRA. No surprise there. You are sheltering that income from current taxation and lowering your AGI and taxable income. How about that? How about another one, the use of an HSA, a health savings account? Your health insurance uh, has to be compatible with an HSA, or maybe it's time to change your health insurance so you can take advantage of it. We obviously covered that topic recently when we had June Schaefer on a show. Uh, I think it was just one month ago. And then the favorite example for most business owners and rental real estate investors, also known as landlords, depreciation which is merely a non-cash expense you deduct from your income. I was very surprised how few real estate investors take advantage of cost segregation, which allows them to take much higher depreciation early years of that investment. Another more sophisticated example is a 1031 exchange of an investment asset. Now, the key thing you remember with this strategy of sheltering income to defer taxes is that you are deferring them. Eventually, you or your heirs will pay some or all of those taxes you deferred. Now, generally, that tax bill should be lower in years that you're no longer working for money. Sixth component, shelter income to avoid taxes. Now, when I use this phrase in seminars, I like to whisper it so the attendees assume I'm giving them a shady vehicle to get around the tax law. In reality, these are legal methods. Best known, of course, is the Roth IRA. Now, as an astute listener, you're probably saying, well, wait a minute, but if I contribute to a Roth IRA, I'm already taxed on that income. That is correct, but all taxes and appreciation and income from that Roth IRA are sheltered and avoid taxation for you and for your heirs, hopefully forever. Now, another strategy must less known is the use of a cash value life insurance policy. We covered that during our series of, on OPM in July of 2011. And please realize OPM is the acronym for other people's money, not opium, the illegal narcotic. Okay, seventh component is use of special tax credits and deductions. You're going to enjoy this one. My best example of this is oil and gas exploration. You see, the U.S. tax code is a very generous tax treatment excuse me, of these speculative investments in oil and gas. I assume they think that oil and gas are an important component of energy dependence and thus are willing to provide tax benefits to investors. You can actually get somewhere between a 50% and 90% deduction 
for your initial investment in the year that you make that investment. So if, and I'll stress only if, you've already researched and considering this investment opportunity, then maybe prior to year end is a perfect time to invest. Now, I'm not recommending this if you haven't already done the appropriate due diligence and already feel it's an appropriate uh, investment for your portfolio. In, incidentally, after the initial investment, it's very much like an annuity. Not an annuity linked to your life by lifetime, but linked to the lifetime of the well, which, of course, could be one hour, one year, or maybe even 20 years. Now, one of the reasons I like to emphasize this particular investment is it's a great example of the conflict of three government policies. The first is the tax code. It provides a nice incentive for you to invest in oil and gas. The second, the government is doing whatever it can to shrink the gap between the rich and the poor, both in income and taxation. But the third is securities law, which restricts this tax loophole to the rich. In order to invest in oil and gas exploration, you have to be an accredited investor. So by most definitions, you have to be rich to use this loophole. Now, I suspect each of our listeners can appreciate this irony. And yet, we probably would be hard-pressed to find a single politician in Washington even to notice there's an inconsistency. Now, let me share one other tax credit that I'm planning to take advantage of in the near future that also provides an excellent example of this income shifting we just talked about. I'm planning to install a rooftop solar system on my home, which comes with some significant tax credits. Now, when I make that investment in 2014 will be an ideal time for me to put more taxable income into that year. So, again, there are times where you want to shift income into particular years. Now, which investments, this is the eighth component, which investments in which account? Very simple strategy overlooked by many investors. For the sake of time, I won't mention all of them, but let's say you have a number of different accounts, some taxable, some within tax shelters like IRAs and 401ks, and don't overlook the idea of using foreign accounts where you also can shelter income since you're not receiving any taxable income in the year of the gains. But let's pick an easy example. If you have bonds in your portfolio, which by uh, by itself is a bad idea today, or you have private mortgage loans which generate ordinary income, unless you're relying on that income today, they should be placed in your IRAs. On the other hand, MLPs and REITs, REITs, which generate income but also have some tax benefits, they would be better off in your taxable accounts. Growth stocks, contrary to popular opinion, by the way, that you're holding for the long term, and dividend-paying stocks may be better in a taxable account. Think about that one. But it basically has to do with paying a capital gains tax now or ordinary tax rate later. Uh, Component number nine, avoiding double taxation. Now, despite the major steps taken during President Reagan's uh, administration to eliminate double taxation, oh, it was President Bush, excuse me, uh, much more recently eliminate double taxation on dividends, there is still some double taxation. See, the company paying the dividend is taxed on profits, and the person receiving that dividend, you, are also taxed, albeit at a lower tax rate. But that is an important consideration in which type of company you want to set up for yourself. If you set up a C-Corp, then any dividends you pay to yourself will be subject to that double taxation. And by the way, a less common issue, but existing, 
is if indeed you live in a foreign country or you invest in a foreign country and that one doesn't have a tax treaty with the U.S. You could be subject to double taxation. Number 10, get expert advice. Now, I'm not suggesting you hire a CPA or tax attorney to every, review every single investment decision you make or uh, deduction you're taking, but it clearly makes sense to get an expert's advice on major issues, like the structure of your company. And I'll also add a suggestion here when it comes to the use of CPAs to prepare your tax return. Generally, hiring a CPA to prepare your accounts and then prepare your tax return will be fairly costly due to the time they spend. Try the Pareto principle and get 80-20 benefit. That is to have uh, them review the accounts you or your bookkeeper have done and review the taxes you've prepared yourself. Component 11, keep learning. Although I've already touched on this, continually learning about investing and taxes is a critical part of your tax strategy. The U.S. tax code is extremely complex. There's no way any of us would ever have the time or inclination to read it all. Besides, by the time we finished, we'd not only be confused, but they'd make some changes, and we'd have to digest those as well. So it's more practical to learn about aspects of personal and corporate tax that affect you today. And remember, the Wealth DNA framework, especially the N for knowledge, or knowledge if you prefer. And I mentioned your to-do list of items to look into. That's where they are. You keep learning bit by bit. Our legal obligation, component, final component number 12 of your strategy, is a summary of the legal, legal obligation to pay taxes. Simply state it, to pay what you're legally liable for, but to pay no more than what you're legally liable for. So whenever someone challenges you whether you should or shouldn't take advantage of loopholes or tax shelters, just reread that obligation. There's nothing in the tax code, or at least not yet, about paying your fair share. When you know the tax laws and it applies in your situation or your investments, take full advantage of every tax deduction, credit, and shelter available. So the 12th strategy component is a great segue to our fifth topic, loopholes. What are loopholes? Commonly used term. Let's first turn to an Investopedia, one of my favorite sources. A loophole is a technicality that allows a person or a business to avoid the scope of law without directly violating the law. Loopholes provide ways for individuals and companies to remove income or assets from taxable situations into ones with lower taxes or none at all. Now, second, let's consider the common definition. Loopholes are something my neighbor took advantage of that I didn't know about. Hint, if people took more time to learn about taxes, they wouldn't think this way. Now, the third is the incorrect but commonly used definition. Loopholes are tax advantages available only to the rich. In reality, these loopholes or tax shelters are available to everyone unless another law restricts their use to rich people, like the oil and gas exploration deductions we talked about. Now, on the other hand, people with low income levels who have a 0% tax rate have little reason to take advantage of ways to generate tax deductions. So, they already have a low tax rate, much lower than the other half of the population. So, why would they care? Let's look at the 12 strategies we just covered and decide which would likely fit into the category of loopholes. And I'll suggest four of them. Number three, owning a company, one of the most powerful ways to manage your taxes. Number five, sheltering income to defer taxes. Take deduction now and pay tax. Manana. 
someday. Number six, sheltering income to avoid taxes. Sounds shady, but Roth IRAs are great. Number seven, use of special tax credits and deductions. Now, notice them. Um, notice that all of these are not only allowed, but they're specifically sanctioned by the U.S. tax code. There's nothing that stops an individual from taking advantage of these. And only a few examples, like, number, like uh, examples in number seven of the uh, oil and gas, that uh, only the rich can take advantage of. In the most, for the most part, they're available to everybody. So instead of blaming the rich, maybe we'd be better off blaming the government. Let's move on to topic number six. What's going away? What's being proposed? Important one. For this and the next three topics, it's almost impossible to include every possible item, so I'll focus on a few that likely affect you and our other listeners the most. This is the last year of the special first-year depreciation on equipment used in business, and uh, you'll be able to take advantage of that uh, accelerated depreciation still this year. If you bought equipment in 2013, I recall up to $500,000 in value, you should consider taking advantage of it. You might want to uh, combine that with accelerating some income from 2014 and delaying some expenses from 2013 so you don't end up with a very low tax rate this year and a major jump in taxes next year. Uh, Number two, as of 2013, the medical uh, deduction threshold is now 10% of AGI. So if your medical or donut whole expenses not reimbursed by insurance don't exceed 10%, you won't be able to deduct any expenses. Medical expenses, that is. Third, the energy uh, tax credit is also expiring for energy efficiency improvements. I remember a few years ago in December squeezing in some extra insulation in my attic to take advantage of it. Now, due to the uh, fiscal cliff negotiations, a number of new taxes have been uh, implemented. The most notable is the 3.8% tax surcharge on investment income to help fund Obamacare. And yes, that's the same Obamacare that's supposed to reduce our taxes eventually. There's an additional 0.9% tax rate and a phase-out of deductions for mortgage interest on your personal home. Fortunately, it doesn't apply to investment properties. And I'll remind you, your own home is not an investment. So we've seen the first step toward eliminating the mortgage interest deduction, and now the door is open for higher taxes on the rich. We can expect more. And the majority of the people... Those not paying in taxes, subside others. Oh my goodness, we have a fire alarm going on here. Let me see if I can get it solved quickly. Or open all the windows, please. Open all the windows. Okay, we're gonna we're not gonna be able to finish everything, obviously, with this noise. My apologies. I'm gonna put it on mute for just a moment. I'm not going away, but that ear piercing noise is very frustrating. Okay, my apologies. Hopefully we're back on the air. Uh, We did solve that problem, but we're going to have to curtail a lot of what we were going to cover. Uh, Where did I leave off? Now, the um, home office deduction is uh, actually being liberalized, so what you used to think of as a red flag isn't uh, viewed that way anymore. And although it's not an official change to the tax code, an important one I want to mention is the... uh, Mutual funds or investment funds, when we're starting again, will have higher capital gains distributions. It looks like I'm going to have to shut off one more second here and hopefully resolve it faster.
All right, this is exciting. We're going through the property and obviously having a fire in the past. Those things are pretty scary. Um, but anyway, what are some of the other things going away or changing? I mentioned that uh, investment funds will be paying a lot more in uh, the uh, distributions, so that will affect your tax rate this year, and you may not want to invest in more of them until they finish their year-end distribution. Uh, let's get back to a comment I made earlier about the uh, tax climate in uh, Washington, D.C. Very clearly, the administration would like to uh, raise taxes further rather than reducing the budget or making the government more efficient. So it would be better to bite the tax bullet this year in many cases instead of in future years. What's the stock market telling us? Well, it appears to be heading up, which means there's not a lot of tax selling, which basically confirms investment funds will be paying out more distributions and therefore will already have a lot of taxable gains this year. People don't want to sell. What are we hearing in the tax rumor bill? Very important topic uh, is that there is a uh, actually good news afoot. They're talking about lowering the tax rate on corporations. I think even the administration has finally figured out that uh, companies don't pay taxes. So uh, if they bring it down to 20%, which is what I'm hearing about, I'm going to shut off a few more things, make sure we're not causing any problems. Uh, but if it does come to 20%, all of a sudden having a Schedule C company instead of an S-Corp or a Schedule C uh, might make a lot of sense. So, again, something to research if you're not familiar with it. Now, I've heard a very scary proposal I want to make, mention here from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Proposals a one-time wealth tax assessed on taxpayers in every country to help bring down government debt around the world. Their proposal is a 10% wealth tax. So if you have $5 million in assets, you would pay a half a million dollars in taxes that year. Now, I suspect those geniuses wouldn't see any particular reason that assets in your IRA shouldn't be uh, included in there. So that means you might have to sell assets in your IRA, which would trigger additional tax and even penalties to pay the wealth tax. Now, if this proposal seems totally improbable, just keep in mind after the banking crisis in Cyprus, what was done? Essentially, just that. All major bank depositors and investors paid for it. One more rumor floating around the nationalization of the 401k and IRAs uh, in return for providing you a defined benefit. You say, well, that'll never happen. Well, Hungary already did it about two and three years ago. Poland just is doing it now in 2013. And gee, can you now imagine you'll have the opportunity to trade in your $3 million IRAs and uh, maybe you'll get 10% more in uh, Social Security benefits. Are you feeling more financially secure already? This may be one more reason to take full advantage of IRAs while we can. We're hoping there will be enough popular revolt that the government will grandfather existing plans. Did someone mention the second constitutional amendment? Now you know why Homeland Security is buying, many, buying so many rounds of ammunition. They're expecting a revolt. The one thing you should not count on is a change from the current progressive tax system to a flat tax, which was being proposed under the Reagan uh, administration. And essentially, they did a lot to flatten taxes by lowering the tax on the rich and slightly increasing the amount of people who paid very little. Unfortunately, most people in government no longer remember how to spell Reaganomics or even supply-side economics. And by the way, the terms progressive and progressivism are politically correct ways to refer to what we used to be called socialism and communism. 
So don't be surprised if the progressive U.S. tax system becomes even more progressive. The bottom line to our sixth topic, what's going away, what's being proposed? There are a number of reasons why biting the tax bullet in 2013 may make more sense than the typical tactic of minimizing taxes and postponing the pain for the future. The future might just be more painful. Uh, Good time to remind you and apologize for the delay that... uh, you are listening to the Wealth Dana Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. If you missed the earlier part of the show, including our fire drill, you can listen to the earlier portion on the archive. Or, of course, there you'll find the earlier shows we talked about. WealthDNA.us is where you'll find it. Today our topic is tips to manage your taxes. We've covered six of the eight topics so far. The seventh is very ambitious, and I will have to just even trim it further, and I hope to cover most of these. That seventh topic is tips for kicking your tax bill down the road. And we've covered a number of them earlier, like the oil and gas exploration. But let's start with the obvious. Don't miss any deductions you're entitled to. That includes seminars and training you might have attended, including travel expense. Unfortunately, you can't deduct the cost of listening to this show. It's free. Now, if you're making additional charitable contributions, consider donating some appreciated stocks or bonds. Your donation will be based on the full market value, and you'll avoid paying taxes on those gains. If you're a real estate investor with significant depreciation deductions, make sure you or your spouse qualifies a real estate professional. And realtors, by the way, don't qualify. And again, for real estate investors, if you acquired new properties in 2013, do a cost segregation analysis and you use the appropriate shorter lives for some of the components of that property and review any improvements or renovations as to which you know which portions could be expensed rather than treated as capital improvements now on that same topic let me mention one more for real estate investors the ones focused on rentals leased own and private mortgage lending that income is viewed as passive income and therefore you're not subject to self-employment tax the way fixed and flip investors would be make sure you classify your company accordingly now for businesses you might want to pay your office rent for january in december uh, another for businesses you can pay your kids to do some of the work for your company their tax rate is probably significantly lower Now, if you already crossed the threshold for being able to deduct medical expenses, then maybe stock up on prescription medications or sneak into some doctor or dental visits before year-end. Now, let's talk some of the biggest opportunities, the most important. And last time we talked about true self-directed IRAs, but whether you use them or the standard Wall Street type, take full advantage. You and your spouse can invest up to $5,500 each this year into a traditional IRA and an additional $1,000 catch-up contribution. That's only if, of course, you're in your second half of your life. But remember what Ethel and Fred taught us. You can't contribute more than your earned income. Now, if you're actively participating in a company 401k, that doesn't preclude investing in a traditional IRA or even a Roth IRA. But there are very specific income limits you have to stay within in order for that to be tax deductible. Now, if you set up a SEP IRA, let me spell that, S-E-P IRA, simplified IRA, the limits for investing are about nine times the level for a traditional IRA. So I highly suggest looking into whether you can take advantage of a SEP IRA or setting up a solo 401k. 
If you've reached the maximum level you can invest in a traditional SEP IRA, consider also investing in a Roth IRA. Obviously, that won't reduce your taxable income in 2013, but will avoid taxes on the money you earn in future years. And uh, most of you have uh, heard of um, the uh, uh, true self-directed IRAs on our last show, and you realize that you can do anything you do in your cash accounts within that self-directed IRA, almost anything, a couple of minor exceptions. Now, if you're like me and you don't have earned income, you still can contribute to your HSA, even if you don't think you'll use all of that money for medical expenses in the next year or two. It still may make sense to take advantage of the tax deduction. I will be. The maximum amount you and your spouse each can contribute, 3250 plus an additional $1,000 catch-up if you're in the second half of your life. Now, for residents of states like Arizona, who have a very generous tax credit for donations to public and private schools, for the working poor, and other qualified charities, you certainly want to take advantage of those prior to year-end. You'll be able to get a deduction on your federal taxes, assuming you itemize, of course, plus you'll reduce your state tax a dollar for every dollar donated. The vast majority of state taxpayers actually can wipe out their entire state obligation. So yes, it pays to get to know your state tax rules as well. Uh, let me just share a important suggestion related to some of these tips. If you use a vehicle for business activity, make sure, absolutely make sure you track where you go each day starting and ending mileage. If your spouse or you are qualifying as a real estate uh, professional, also a good idea to log the hours spent on real estate related activities. Now, if you want to get a jump on reducing taxes for 2014 or beyond, in addition to contributing to a Roth IRA, you could give some investments to your young kids. Their tax rate is significantly lower, up to $2,000 a year. And just like with charitable contributions, you can give your kids some of the appreciated assets, and chances are their tax rate on capital gains will be zero. Now, as a um, share these tips, um, you may have gotten the impression that companies and real estate investors have significantly more opportunities to manage their taxes than individuals. Well, the reason you might get that impression is because it's true. Let's move on to topic eight uh, very briefly here, and we'll run over a little bit, but I'm going to try to minimize that, which, uh, by the way, the topic number eight is tips for paying a little more today and less in the future. Prior to this show, most listeners would never have considered it. I mentioned a number of scenarios where you might want to do this, applying for mortgage, having lower income this year than user, or uh, being able to take advantage of unusually uh, high deductions or credits. So then it probably makes sense to shift income into the current year or defer expenses to a future year. Now, if you're thinking there's no need to do that, you're you just figure you can have a loss for the year and you'll then carry that net operating loss forward or back for a number of years to reduce the tax in other years, right? So why bother doing the shifting of income? I'll just use the NOL method. Well, that's not true. Do not count on net operating loss or NOL carry forward or carry back as a good way to cover today's losses. I've been there, tried that, and I'll never plan to do it again. And I'd suggest learning from others makes mistakes, including mine, rather than from your own. Now, let me share a um, story. Well, let me first of all mention one key point, and then I'll share a story that will hopefully make this point very, very clear. Uh, for each year you carry 
back or forward, you actually lose the personal exemption that you're entitled to, and that's why you don't want to count on that method. So for a married couple, that's a loss of $7,800 in deductions, and for families, much more. So let me share my story. And uh, with it, it leads to a uh, very important tip. Uh, this is uh, that's been introduced in the tax code, and most people don't fully understand. When I moved BI Solutions to the U.S. and started acquiring properties for our lease-to-own programs, I began to fully appreciate what the tax benefits were from being a real estate investor, and uh, we had more write-offs than even the you know to offset the profits we had, and we offset them by a lot. So. Since we're set up in S-Corp, all of those benefits flow to the shareholders. My wife and I happen to be the largest, among the largest shareholders, so it was obvious by November that we would have net operating losses. So, like most listeners would do, I started researching the possibilities with NOL carry back and carry forward. I definitely didn't want to carry those losses back since I had low tax rates due to the foreign earned income exemption that I had while I was living in Europe. I usually had to, I actually, uh, interestingly, had to vow to never use that federal earned income exemption again in order to carry the uh, NOLs forward. Otherwise, I'd have to carry them back. So interesting uh, tax laws you get to know as you look into this stuff. But carrying it forward might mean I would have losses for the next five or ten years because of accumulating properties. So I focused on generating additional income that year and potentially for many years in the future. How did I do it? I used several IRA conversions that were taxable income, and that money was converted directly in a Roth IRA, so I wouldn't be subject to the early withdrawal penalty. Also, when I withdraw that money eventually, and I'm paying higher taxes in the future, I won't pay any taxes on those withdrawals. So I did the right thing, just not enough of it. I still had loss, a loss that year. Now, the next year, I estimated better and converted more, but I still converted too little and had a tax loss again because I had more depreciation deductions and they were rising. So lesson number one with conversions, don't assume your income is too high to do a conversion. Since 2008, the government deficit has been so high, they're desperate for additional tax revenue. Essentially, they made it possible for anyone to do these conversions to generate more taxes. Lesson number two, if your marginal tax rate is below 25%, convert. The rules could change in the future, so take advantage of it while you can. Lesson number three, converting too much is better than converting too little. Too little. Now, the third year in this process, I finally uh, figured I'd better convert a lot and uh, make sure that I can carry forward those losses and to get this whole thing cleared up. Well, when I did that... Um, I found out the hard way that I would lose those personal exemptions. So I had not only converted too much, but I was losing $15,000 or so in um, lost carry forward that I thought I had because of those exemptions. That happened to be the year our home and office burden, so no tax files available nor time to deal with filing that tax return. And here's an important tip. The IRS doesn't care. Now, I unfortunately made a major mistake, and hopefully you'll never do this, by assuming it was too late to do anything about converting too much. It turns out I could have recharacterized part of that conversion right up to the date I had filed my taxes in October. Another lesson learned the hard way. 
So if you convert too much, you can recharacterize some portion or all of it with no penalty, no extra taxes. Golfers would call this a mulligan. In 2012, I did just that. It worked fine, except that the custodian knew far less about the calculations required than I did, and I nearly missed the deadline. But they manned up and agreed it was their error and made the recharacterization effective just before I filed my return. Most people have no clue that you can do a recharacterization of a conversion. You now know. And here are the three lessons that come with this. Lesson number one with recharacterization. Don't assume. Check the rules. They are generous, at least for now. Lesson number two is the same as lesson number two above. If your marginal tax rate is below 25%, convert. You can always recharacterize if you think your tax bill is too high. The rules could change in the future, so take advantage of it while you can. Now, lesson number three, don't wait until the last minute. Do the recharacterization a few weeks before you file your taxes in case your custodian is not as well-versed as you are. Now, I won't uh, repeat many of the suggestions we covered earlier about uh, shifting taxable income into the current year, but I will give you an example at least. Um, If you don't want to sell some of your appreciated uh, securities because uh, it would generate additional uh, tax income, well, uh, and especially bonds, by the way, it would be a good idea to do that if you want extra taxable income. Sell assets with appreciation, and bonds would be the one I would start with. But there could be a exception to that, and that would be if you have a lot of um, investment carry-forward losses. If so, you won't, won't be able to deduct, deduct most of it this year. You might as well leave them in place for future taxable years. So lots of aspects to think about as you move forward. All part of management of taxes. Now, if, as I mentioned earlier, if you're an investor in BI Solutions Corp., we can always help you shift interest payments on private mortgage loans uh, in a little bit sooner. Um, so let us know if we can help there. Now, we've covered a lot of tips for managing taxes, and we obviously don't have time to, to summarize all of that. So let me just uh, add a few uh, important comments. If you recently withdrew money from an IRA to take advantage of some of the alternative investments we've covered in our recent series, it makes far more sense to do a custodian-to-custodian transfer that money into a true self-directed Roth IRA. Now, or into a true self-directed IRA. You don't even have to pay taxes then. If you sold those funds within the last 60 days and didn't actually use the money, you might want to talk to your custodian about reversing that transaction. I hate to see listeners pay more in taxes than they need to. Now, I know a few people who did this before they became regular listeners to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. Now, a reminder related to U.S. tax law. One of the assets you would not want to put into a company is your personal home. U.S. tax code uh, gives a very generous $250,000 exclusion of gain for an individual, $500,000 for a couple. But if you put that property into a company, you could jeopardize that. And another general reminder, you have the right and even obligation to take full advantage of the deductions, credits, and shelters. If, on the other hand, you're overly aggressive in qualifying expenses as deductible, you raise the risk of being audited and penalized. By the way, a tax audit in itself isn't a scary event. I think I've been audited at least three times. In the years that one of the big accounting firms did my returns, which we now refer to them as the final four, I received refunds after those audits. 
So in many cases, uh, the IRS, like in those, didn't even contact me. They just sent me a check. Now, uh, here on the Wealth DNA Radio Show, we obviously focus on uh, the fundamentals of investing and thus topics that will be important to investors today as well as five or ten years from now. Today's show is a bit unusual in that regard since this topic requires action literally in the next few days by millions of Americans if they want to reduce their taxable income for 2013 or increase it. Although consistent with our theme, the strategies and tactics we discussed will apply for many years or decades to come. Now, the comments you heard today about tax changes being considered are more likely to be negative than positive for the typical U.S. citizen also known as taxpayer. Listeners to this show are far more far from typical, though, and I suspect we'll find ways to work around or even profit from those changes. We'll, have, um, we'll never have enough time in these uh, shows to cover every related topic, and obviously today was one of those. Regular listeners know that our objective is to help uh, one million people become millionaires, and certainly one of the priorities in order to earn money effectively manage your portfolio is the ability to pay as little in taxes as possible. So today's show, you might want to go back and listen and apologize for the many delays we had due to the uh, fire alarms. Now, one of the best ways to increase your wealth, tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help diversify and grow our portfolio. Our next show, will have H.L. Quist back to let us know what's coming for 2014. Then we'll have Jason Slade back to talk about annuities, topics to help you be among the million millionaires. I'd like to thank BI Solutions Corp. for sponsoring this show and Boomer and the Babe Network for making it all possible. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the second Monday of January, 2014. That's uh, January 13th, 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place, same time. As usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us. There you'll find the archive of past shows, as well as this one. If you have some comments, today's show, suggestions, additional questions, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about show, future shows and events as well. Now, on behalf of the entire team, I wish you and your entire family a very Merry Christmas and a happy and prosperous New Year and making wise choices to manage your 2013 taxes.